Welcome to Preserving Valor, a podcast dedicated to saving the personal stories of veterans. My name is Jay Vissers. Today, we're starting the story of Wesley Lusmore, a World War II veteran who served as the radio operator aboard a B-17 in Europe. This series will differ slightly because in addition to our brief interview, Wesley supplied us with a 50-page manuscript that he wrote in the 90s using his letters, records, and other resources. To help keep everything straight, I've enlisted the help of a friend. Hello, I'm Bernard. I'll be reading parts of Wesley's manuscript. Let's get started. Wesley grew up in Skaney, a rural town along the coast of the Keweenaw Bay in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. My father, George Lusmore, he served, incidentally, in World War I. My mother was a Barnett, Chauncey Barnett was my great-grandfather. He was in, World, in the Civil War, and his father was also in the Civil War. So our, our family on the Barnett side is, it goes back into a lot of military service. Wesley was part of the final class that graduated from Skaney High School in 1941. The following year, all of the students were bused to neighboring lawns. He intended to go to the Michigan College of Mining and Technology now known as Michigan Technological University. But he was still in his first semester there when he heard 19-year-olds were being drafted into the U.S. Army. Hoping to take advantage of a deferment plan and stay in college, Wesley enrolled with the Air Force Reserves, only to be called into active duty a couple of months later. He and five others from Michigan Tech got orders to go to Chicago and left by train together. They arrived the morning before they were due to report. In his manuscript, he wrote, We browsed around the downtown area and took in a movie that day and reported for duty at 8.30 a.m. on February 25 as ordered. They took roll call and put us on buses back to the train station. By 11 a.m., we were on our way to Miami. The train trip was okay, but we were on day coaches, and at night we had to take the seats apart and fix a bed where three guys could sleep. They arrived in Miami on February 27, 1943, and were issued bedding and assigned rooms at the Majestic Hotel on Miami Beach. The U.S. Army had commandeered many of the hotels to house soldiers during their training. Wesley and the other trainees from the northern reaches of the United States were unaccustomed to the amount of sun they were suddenly getting in Florida. I got burned so bad that at times I couldn't stand to put on long-sleeved shirts or long pants. In fact, for several nights, it was hard to lay down to get some sleep. This and the sore arms and headaches from shots and vaccinations made the first few weeks torture. At the beginning of April, Wesley was transferred to Furman University in South Carolina for classes on flight theory, weather, navigation, and civil air regulations. They took various aptitude tests, 
and had flight training in Piper Cubs. Wesley wrote, It was nice here at school in that we only had inspections and drill practice on Saturdays since our weekday schedules were full of classes and lectures. We didn't have to do KP because students who were working their way through school were employed by the NYAE to do it. While in training at Furman University, Wesley took the chance to watch several more movies, pastime he would regularly enjoy throughout his service. Here, he saw the classic World War II movie Casablanca, as well as the 1934 John Wayne film, The Trail Beyond, and A Yank in the RAF, the story of an American pilot who, trying to impress his Anglophile ex-girlfriend, joined the RAF in the years before the United States joined World War II. As time goes by. The South Carolinians were welcoming towards the soldiers, and Wesley and other trainees attended several services at a local Lutheran church. However, not everything was simple and peaceful. The civilians in town spoke with a heavy southern accent, and understanding them sometimes was difficult. Also surprising was the intense intolerance and hatred between the blacks and whites. They left South Carolina by troop train in May, destination San Antonio, Texas. However, along the way, rumors spread that pilot training schools were filled and backlogged and that they were destined to be sent to other technical schools instead. In his manuscript, Wesley wrote, We arrived at the classification center, San Antonio, a very disappointed and disgruntled group, our hopes of getting into pilot training now seemingly dashed. Despite the drop in morale, Wesley's training continued as quickly as possible. It was a lot of grueling, grueling uh, training. Everything was expedited. Whenever we weren't out on the drill field, we were picking up cigarette butts off the lawn or, you know, <laughs> anything. They didn't have us doing anything that needed to be done. Wesley recorded his difficulties at this base in his manuscript, too. Of all the military bases I was assigned to, this one was the worst. In terms of stress, discipline, questionable enforcement of petty rules, and useless activity. I don't know if it was by design to test the mettle of the troops or to feed the egos of the permanent staff. One fellow said he was washed out because they didn't like the way his mouth looked when he talked. They told him it was a sign of nervousness. Halfway through June, Wesley left San Antonio with a group of other soldiers for Shepherd Field in Wichita Falls. One thing I remember about Shepherd Field was the heat. The temperature rose to over 100 degrees many times and almost every day to 90 degrees or more. We still had to do our PT and drilling with and without rifle and full gear including gas masks. GIs passing out from the heat was a common almost daily occurrence. Despite the pace of the training, Wesley still had the chance to take advantage of the theater on base. He saw several movies, including Action in the North Atlantic with Humphrey Bogart and Coney Island starring Betty Grable. Up a little closer. 
Since Wesley had heard that pilot, navigator, and bombardier schools were already full, he selected radio operator as his first choice. Late in July of 1943, he was sent to radio school in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Of course, Wesley was far from the only one in the armed forces. World War II marked the largest mobilization in American history, with over 16 million soldiers in the U.S. armed forces by the war's end, most of them young men. As such, Wesley often found himself alongside his peers, despite being far from home. In his manuscript, he wrote, there were about 3,000 soldiers here from Shepherd Field, and a lot of the fellows I knew there ended up here too. Two fellows from Lance were here, Brogan and Salness, and some of the ones I knew at Furman U were here too. Wesley kept focused and jumped into his classes with enthusiasm. Well, I was always anxious to learn. Whenever we in my radio course, you know, I've, uh, I figured that I could use that information after I got out. So I buckled down and I learned, you know, I spend hours reading whatever material they had there. And I did real good in everything. Starting with theory, Wesley studied everything about Army radio equipment. Eventually, he learned to operate and repair the sets in mock-ups of radio installations in the planes. He learned Morse code and graduated mid-December with very good grades. Shortly before graduation, I was called for an interview by the Communication Cadet Board to see if I would like to apply for officer school, but I told them I'd rather not. I was anxious to get on with my gunnery school and finish my training. Also, a communications officer would probably be assigned to a ground job, and I wanted to fly. There was a USO club in Sioux Falls, and sometimes local girls would come by and dance with the soldiers. This buddy of mine, James Lynch from New Jersey, was quite a jitterbugger and would often be inspired to go through his antics on the dance floor, sometimes with just another GI, but sometimes one of these girls could keep up with him and the floor would clear and everyone would end up watching them. Wesley also liked the theater at the base in Sioux Falls and saw dozens of movies there including Hers to Hold, the third film of the Three Smart Girls trilogy, starring Deanna Durbin as Penny Craig. She goes to work in a munitions factory, but wants to be close to a pilot played by Joseph Cotton. Cotton's character is posted overseas, leaving Penny to worry for him. The narrative was one that reflected that of many young men and women at the time. Wesley and his fellow trainees had worries of their own. While they had trained, summer turned to fall and fall into winter, and the temperatures in South Dakota were less than hospitable. We were issued extra blankets and still had to keep all three coal stoves in the barracks going to keep warm. There were lots of colds and flu going around, and at times it seemed that half the barracks was on sick call or in the hospital. 
Fortunately for Wesley, in mid-December he graduated and was quickly shipped off to Yuma, Arizona via troop train. Along the way, near El Paso, they were stopped on a siding for an hour, but not allowed off the train. Wesley wrote about it in his manuscript. It wasn't long before Mexicans came alongside selling hot dogs and tamales. I bought one of the tamales wrapped in corn husks, the first I had ever seen or eaten, and wow, it was so hot I couldn't finish it. As they reached Arizona, they began to really enjoy the climate, without realizing the harshness that it might present later. On the way we thought, what a delightful change of climate, from the snowy, wintry weather in Sioux Falls to here, where the temperature was in the 70s. We had yet to experience a dust storm. We were at the, in a desert country in Yuma, Arizona, and it was hotter than heck. And, uh, well, we were living in tents there. <laughs> We'd come back to the barracks, you know, there'd be dust on the bedding, and we'd just shake out the bedding. We'd, we'd uh, get up in the morning, we had to look at our, in our shoes to make sure there weren't uh, snakes or, <laughs> oh, what are these, the other critters? <laughs> It was, uh, it was heck. In his manuscript, Wesley wrote, Everything was a little disjointed and uncoordinated at the beginning because many of the instructors and permanent GIs were new here and a lot of the instructional material and equipment had not yet arrived. We didn't have hot water for the first week. Once training resumed in earnest, the days were regularly 14 hours long. We started with the 50 caliber machine gun in the mornings, studying its design and construction, parts functions, assembly and disassembly, and eventually learning to do it blindfolded. In the afternoon, we had code practice, studied different gun sights, turrets, and radio mechanics. Later, we fired shotguns at clay pigeons on the ground and from moving trucks. We also studied the M1 carbine Garand 45 caliber automatic pistol and the 30 and 50 cal machine guns. With all of these, we had to be able to disassemble and assemble them blindfolded and learn how to repair and shoot them. Wesley only had time to see one movie while here. The Gang's All Here with Carmen Miranda. The tip-off on its hilarity, romance, music, rhythm, splendor, and all-around entertainment is its title, The Gang's All Here. If you wanna, you can rhyme it with bazooka, but you can't poop-poop-a-dooka. That's another name for paradise. Graduating from gunnery school in February, Wesley was promoted to colonel and given a 10-day furlough plus five days travel allowance. I was glad to get home again, even though it was not the best time of year to have a vacation in the upper peninsula of Michigan. There was lots of snow on the ground and it was cold. I managed to get the old Fordson tractor started, but couldn't do anything with it because the snow would stick to the cleats on the steel wheels 
and it had no traction. I did get to visit many of my relatives, but most of my friends from school had been drafted into military service or enlisted, so it was not the same back there. After his furlough, Wesley reported to the Army Air Base in Salt Lake City, Utah. Here, they went through his records and found nothing had been entered for the mechanical aptitude test, so he had to retake that. He only remembers seeing one movie here, No Time for Love. The day's gotta be boring here, with only two hours of schooling per day, so we did lots of reading and KP. The radio operators were not getting assigned to crews very fast, and there were so many of us that finally they started assigning two to a crew, making some of them career gunners. Wesley didn't have to wait here long. In mid-March, he was assigned to a B-17 crew and shipped to Pyote, Texas. Along the way, he met Charles Allen, another radio operator assigned to his crew as a waste gunner. They were quarantined in Texas for five days because a couple of cases of scarlet fever had been found on the train. From here, the training became even more intense and focused. They flew practice flights at all times of day. On days that they flew as a crew, they had to be ready at 6 a.m. Between March and May, Wesley logged 128 hours of flight time across 30 days. As radio operator, I made radio contacts with home base, other bases, and other aircraft. Some of the operators had problems getting their required contacts, but I never had any such problems. I really liked the liaison radio set on the B-17 and never had a problem tuning the antenna and radio to transmit or receive a strong signal. Early in the training, an instructor came aboard to check how Wesley was doing. He asked me a lot of questions and watched me as I made some contacts, and he told me I didn't need any more instructions, that I was on my own, and that if I ever had any questions to ask him, and maybe he could answer them or help me find the answer. I had developed a procedure for getting the maximum power out of the radio that was not even... Oh, it wasn't barely mentioned in radio school at Sioux Falls, but the guy that checked me out in, in uh, Piote, Texas, he commented on that too. That I, he asked me to make some contacts, and he saw what I went through. I let the uh, trailing wire antenna out to a position where it was exactly a wavelength of the frequency we were using that day. So I had maximum power going to the antenna instead of being sucked up by tuning adjustments. And so the instructor told my pilot, or at least he told me that he told the pilot that I was a hot rock on the radio. At the end of May, they left Piote for Kearney in Nebraska. Kearney being a staging base, they knew an overseas assignment was in their near future. The excitement and apprehension was growing, but it had been impressed on us throughout our training that we had the best equipment in the world. The dangers involved were not stressed or understood, and we were confident that we could handle whatever situations confronted us. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Preserving Valor. We'll continue Wesley's story in our next episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. You can visit preservingvalor.com to subscribe to our weekly email and find links to our social media platforms and other listening options. Preserving Valor features interviews with real everyday veterans. If you're interested in sharing your story of service, you can reach out via email at preserving.valor at gmail.com. And of course, a huge thank you to Wesley and the other veterans who served alongside of him.